you are uh, here today and maybe you are not um, a Christian and you're kicking the tires on Christianity or you're here to want to figure out what the church actually believes, um, as we sang through that song um, and we were singing some really bold lines, if the thought crossed your mind, do these people really believe what they're singing? Um, I just want to say to you, with all my life, with everything that I am, I believe in what we just sang. Jesus is the cornerstone and foundation, not just of religion, but of the universe. And I'm so thankful for the worship team for picking that song for us to sing this morning. It's funny how you can sing something a couple hundred times and twice in one morning, because this is the second service, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just crushes you in a good way and reminds you of what you believe to be true. Um, so thank you for singing that with me this morning, church. Um, well, we are, uh, we're getting ready to launch Letters of the Church, and so this is part two of the intro to that series. We'll start next week in the book of Ephesians. And so today we're going to do a very similar thing to what we did last week. So just a little bit of recap. Um, what we've decided to do, because we understand the conversation about what church is and who the church is, is a complex conversation, especially in our day and age, with um, all the different uh, theological uh, bents and all the different denominational perspectives and styles of worship and ways of doing things in church government, um, that it would be important for us to start with the foundation from the scriptures, from Jesus himself, on what the church is Boil down to the irreducible minimum, okay? Boil down to the thing you can't change. If you believe anything less than this, it's not Christianity. Now, there are a lot of conversations we're going to have this year that I'm excited about. Uh, theological conversations, uh, ways of doing church, and we're going to be looking at solid rock under the microscope of Scripture. And we're going to be asking ourselves, how are we doing? How are we doing as a church? Are we more focused on our own ambitions? Are we more focused on uh, theological bents and denominational affiliations? Or are we truly focused on what the Scriptures are calling us to be and do? So lots of conversations we could have today about uh, soteriology and eschatology and ecclesiology and all the, the theological geeks just went, whoa, I'm in, okay? But we're not going to, okay? Because what we wanna do today is what we did last week is we wanna boil it down like last week was this. If we believe anything less than this about Jesus, right, it's not Christian. Now you can call yourself Christian. You can put Jesus in the title of your church. You can wear a T-shirt that says Jesus on it. But if you believe anything less than, right, what, what Peter so beautifully proclaimed in Matthew, recorded in Matthew 16, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. If you believe anything less than that, it's not truly Christian, okay? It's just an organization, it may be a religion, but it's not in Christ. Now from there then, we're gonna ask the question today, okay, so that's theology boiled down. We have to start there, okay? More we can add on top of that and will, but we have to start there. Now we're going to talk about today, okay, what is it that the church is supposed to be doing? Because that conversation is equally or even more complex and confusing in the culture we live in today, right? With churches that have all kinds of different ways of doing church, different styles of reaching out to people. And, and some give away cars to draw in a crowd. Others, uh, you know, meet and are just content being 50 folks and, uh, and don't do anything to reach out. And some will have loud music with bands and lights and others have no instruments at all and just sing with voices. And, and we could just keep going, right? Different ways of doing church. If you look at the modern mission movement, uh, which, you know, 
to be, to be completely uh, fair, like the church today, though it's confusing because of all the technological advances and advance in travel and the ways that we can commute and internet and satellite and cable TV and all this, like the church today on the earth is doing more things than it ever has historically. Involved in more people groups, involved in more types of uh, you know, social activities and digging wells. Like we're doing things right now that the apostle Paul didn't have the technology to do if he had wanted to. Okay, so by and large, the church is active around the globe. But if you ask, if you look at all that the church is doing across denominational lines, the Christian church, and you ask, what is the church at the irreducible minimum supposed to be doing? It can be confusing. Are we supposed to be clothing uh, the poor, feeding the hungry, drilling water wells, going to the Philippines? Are we supposed to be doing these things? What, what is it if you reduce it all down to if you do anything less than this, you're not active as the church? What is that? And so we're going to be Matthew 28 uh, today, Matthew verse, uh, 28, verses 16 through uh, 20, and then we're going to jump um, to the book of Acts. We're going to cover the whole book of Acts today, so you're in for a really short sermon. Um, we're going to start in Matthew 28. So uh, I want to have this conversation with you, and what I'm not doing right now is, is, is creating a pep rally for the Christians to go, yeah, but I want to speak very candidly um, to those who may be in this room who are still seeking to find purpose in life, even some of you who are Christians are still struggling to do this, to find purpose in life in and of yourself, okay? Now, um, lots of influences here, culture, media, science, discovery, philosophy, different things could be speaking into your life on, on creating your own purpose. But by and large, the culture today says this to you, you decide the opposite of what we just said. You decide what your destiny is gonna be and then you go do it, okay? Which is not what we just saying. We just saying Christ com commands my destiny, but the, the world by and large says to you, figure out what matters, what matters to you and you can, can go do it. And this reckless slogan came out of uh, the 90s, I think. I remember when I was a kid, you can be anything you wanna be. Just set your mind to it. You know how ridiculous that statement is? It's just goofy, right? Like, it doesn't matter how bad I want to be a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Like I've got sexy legs, but I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna make it, am I, right? So I can't just decide what I wanna be and go do it. Somebody got really tickled over that. So, so just on a real honest level, right? I, I was seemingly created for some things and not for others, thank God. Are you, right, wouldn't watch the Cowboys. I would, Cowboys wouldn't be on TV if I was a cheerleader. But here's the point, that it, it forces us to step back and go, okay, there is some intention then to the way people are created when it comes to purpose and destiny. And so I find, I find two great ironies when it comes to trying to, to determine your own purpose in and of yourself. And so the first one is this. Um, if you sit down with the average human being, the average, even Christians, and you say, um, what matters most in life? Almost universal, almost universally, you're going to have a few exceptions to this. You're going to hear something like relationships, like family, relationships, right? Very few people are going to say a new boat, a new house. Now, okay, so there's a great irony in that because almost everybody wholesale will say what matters in life are the relationships. That's what matters to me. My wife and kids, that's what matters to me. However, when you begin to measure where efforts are given, right, when you begin to look at where is your energy and your money and your reason, where are those things going, a different pursuit altogether is displayed. I find a great irony in that, that what we claim to be most important to us 
Either one, we're just, we're dumb and we're not realizing that there's a, that, that there's a disconnect or two, we're just not being honest because we don't wanna say. What matters to me is accolades. What matters to me is a title. What matters to me is stuff. What matters to me is this house or this lifestyle. Like either one, we're just dumb or two, we're not being honest. Whichever one it is, I don't know, okay? But there's a second irony that I find in the pursuit of purpose in and of ourselves. And, and this one is, is true for me. Um, I haven't always been wholesale, believe the gospel at face value and trust it. I was a questioner early on. And I still do that from time to time today. Um, questioning things. Wanting things to make sense. Wanting things to fit together. I spent a lot of time trying to think in and of myself on, on what I wanted to do with my life. And what my purpose was. What I was going to chase after. Well, here's the second great irony in that. Um, can can you imagine if at the age of six, um, if, if you had come to me and said, Jason, um, what is the purpose of life? I, I, I don't know what I would have said, but I probably would have said, that was the year I started playing soccer. I love soccer. Um, I love, I had a BB gun. I love to shoot stuff. Sorry, PETA fans, but I, I did. I love to shoot stuff. Um, I love to play in the dirt. Now, can you imagine if I at six years old would have locked onto that purpose and stayed there for the rest of my life, like, I, would, I would have never got married, right? And if I'd have locked into that six-year-old mentality of what I thought life was all about, I mean, I'd be 600 pounds right now from all the jelly beans and ice cream, right? Because at that point, my perspective was immature. Now, what if you'd have locked in at 16? Would, it would have been a little bit more, maybe, that's debatable, mature perspective, at least I'd have been taller, right? Uh, I don't, didn't make less mistakes. The mistakes were just bigger. Um, but can you imagine if I'd have locked in at a 16-year-old mentality and just stayed there all the way to right now? Like, you imagine how miserable my wife would be? Sometimes she feels like she's married to a 16-year-old. But here's the point. Like, at 37, I get that, right? And you get it. Where you're at right now, you look back and go, I'm so glad I'm not stuck in last year or last phase of life's mentality. I've learned something, I've grown and my perspective's changed. Now, if that is true, then how ridiculous is it at 37, let's, let's be honest, um, at 37, at best, I'm a third of the way done. I mean, that's really optimistic, but more practically, I'm halfway done with life. How equally ridiculous is it for me at the age of 37 to go, now I've got it down. Right Now I know what life is about. Now what I know what to live for. Because when I'm 67, I'll look back on 37 and go, wow, how ridiculous and immature was I. That is absolutely true, right? Our perspectives change. So I find it incredibly ironic when we lock into our own perspective and try to define our purpose in life. And what we're doing is we're trying to define the whole of life from a portion of it. That is futile. It is foolish and futile. At six, at 16, and 60. It's equally futile to find that purpose from another human being. I don't care how wise or how smart, how intelligent, how articulate, how experienced that person is. 60, 70, 80 years. You're going to find more wisdom, but let's just be honest. The whole of life can't be determined from a portion of it. You learn things, right? You grow in things, but the whole of it can't be determined. And I find that incredibly ironic that we all buy into that. We all buy into, I know what's best for me. I know what's right. I know what would ultimately make me happy. How many silly things have we grabbed a hold of in life that we thought would make us happy and we, we realize they don't? And we let go of those to do what? To grab something else and try something else. And we did it at six and we'll do it at 60. 
And so what I'm proposing for us as we start this conversation is that just on a basic level, we as human beings, we need our purpose to be given to us externally. From, from a being that not only knows us, but from a being that's not confined, right, to temporary existence. A being who's bigger than Parker County or Tarrant County, Texas. I, I grew up in Parker County. And you can tell when you meet somebody from Parker County. Amen? The perspective's got an identity to it. You're laughing. You know it's true. If, if you're from Parker County, you can easily spot somebody from out of state. You just can. You can tell. You didn't grow up from around these, this area, did you? Well, no. So, like, here's the point. Like, our perspective is, is shaped and jaded. And it's small and it's narrow. You can study and read as much as you want. You're still going to be in that sliding scale of un- trying to understand the whole from a part. Okay? Now, now, you might say, okay, that's true, but why does, why does religion get to be the voice? That's, for me, that's what I believe is true. I believe that there is a God who has the authority over the universe. He's not just in it, he's over it. And who has created it. And when he created me with my sexy legs and all, he created me for a purpose and it wasn't to be a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. I believe it's true. And as I look at you, like from my perspective looking out here, I can see God's creative hand all over the place. Thinkers and doubters and gullible and deep and shallow and funny and intellectual and outgoing and, and, and introverted and the whole mess of us. God has specifically created you and I for a purpose. And in the scriptures, he said, this is what you are to do with your life. Now, if you're outside of Christianity, I don't impose that on you. But if you're in Christ, we can't get out from underneath it. Because Jesus has said, those who follow me will be busy doing this. So that's where we are today as we open Matthew 28. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus has said, I'm going to build my church on this beautiful proclamation that Peter just said that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, okay? And moving forward until his death and resurrection, he hasn't really added anybody new to the team. Matter of fact, he loses one in Judas. So in Matthew 28, we're gonna see that it's post-resurrection. Jesus has died. He is, what he has proclaimed to do is to take the sins of the world upon his own shoulders into the grave and leave them there and resurrect, displaying his power. And so in Matthew 28, he calls his crew to himself, starting in verse 16, and he gives them a task. He gives the church a task to carry out. So starting in verse 16, some of you may be familiar with this passage and it doesn't always get preached from 16 because of the word doubt, but I love that it's in there. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, right? Because we lost Judas. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. We're good so far. But some doubted. Now Matthew is writing this. One of the disciples, we don't know if he's just having a moment of honest confession or he remembers the two or three who were lingering in the, the fringes and going, I'm not sure, is that the resurrected Jesus or not? We don't know. But he thought it was important to put that statement in there. And I think it'll speak to us in just a little bit. They worship. Some were still, still not quite sure. Some doubted. Then he says something incredibly significant. In verse 18, he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. We, we know from the, the context of the story, this is a very pinnacle moment. He's giving his last marching orders to his disciples, okay? But what he's just expressed there is incredibly significant. 
He's about to give a command, but before he gives the command, he lets the disciples know, I'm giving you this command based on all authority in the universe. The authority that governs and that has created the universe is about to speak to you. This is a big deal, right? And so we respond differently to different levels of authority. Like when our kids tell us what to do, unless you're a bad parent, you don't respond, right? Well, I hope you don't. Obey your kids and they tell you what to do. Go do this, go, right? Give me that. No, we stop and we correct them, right? We say, no, you need to ask and ask correctly. And the answer is no. <laughs> you learn how to ask correctly. Like we, we, we teach them, right? But then there are certain people in our lives that we, we have learned to obey. Hopefully if you're in a marriage, you've learned to trust that your spouse ultimately is for you or they wouldn't still be with you. And so sometimes they say things that you need to go, okay, I need to listen to that. Uh, some of you uh, have jobs or bosses where you've learned, I, I better obey this authority, right? Or I'm in trouble. But what's being expressed here is this, is Jesus is about to give a command, not from simply a top-down church religious structure or a boss or a parent. The God who created the heavens and the earth is about to give you, church, a command. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Verse 18 says what? Go therefore, because that is true. Go make disciples of all nations. Now for all the, uh, the Greek geeks in here, seminary students, like we know from the language here, there's only one command given in this, this particular context. It's that there's one imperative command and everything else is here to explain that one command. Okay, so just in basic layman's terms, Jesus is ultimately saying, I have one task for you to do. Now here it is, go make disciples. The command to make disciples, discipleship, to make disciples is the command he gives here. Okay, baptizing, we're gonna see that. Teaching, those are the ways in which you carry out the singular command. Okay, so here, let's read it together. Therefore, or go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Nations, formally and informally. Ethnic groups, ethnicities, languages. Go make disciples of the world. Then he gives us, two basic ways that he wants us to do this. And we're going to see it play out through the book of Acts. One, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now we'll stop right here. Um, Do you think identity matters? It absolutely does. Um, Among the beautiful things that are being proclaimed through a baptism, it's at least proclaiming this, that the person being baptized believes that Jesus is the Son of the living God. We'll get to see that next week together uh, in one of our services. I'm not going to tell you which one. It'll be in one of our services. And so it's a beautiful proclamation of identity. The person being baptized is saying, I believe this is true. And we don't go through a theological quiz sheet, right? We don't, we don't make them get all the books of the Bible and write in an order. But on the, on the base level, do you believe this is true? And if you do, you're ready to proclaim that publicly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Does theology matter? It absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. We're gonna see that um, at this particular time, people were still baptizing in the name of John the the Baptist. Because remember, he did that before Jesus hit the scene. And so they're gonna have to correct some of that. All the way down in like Acts 18 and 19, that's still being corrected, okay? And so... Baptize, identity matters, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the God revealed in Scripture. 
And in addition to that, teach them to observe or obey, whichever way you want to translate it, all that I have commanded. Now that's what Jesus tells the church to go do. Go do this. And then we get a beautiful promise. The end of 20 says this. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's what I would put before you today, church. Okay, If you're here today and you're still kind of in, I'm not quite sure if I'm in or not. Hey, you just sit back and watch the church get uncomfortable for a second, okay? Um, church, okay, this is who this is being expressed to. Jesus isn't just saying, you guys go work hard for me and I'll catch up with you somewhere along the way. What he's saying is, I'm going to be with you. And let me, let me flip that. In other words, what I believe he's saying is, if you are gonna be involved with me, this is what you're gonna be doing because this is what I'm gonna be doing. I am taking my church to the ends of the earth. Now go, go do it and you'll be with me. So, so let's, let's be honest for just a minute. Um, in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, um, with like the Experiencing God movement, some fantastic things, um, some, some fantastic things were taught that we hadn't heard before in the church about God wants to have an intimate relationship with me. He has purpose for my life and he wants to walk with me daily. And so the focus for about two decades, or at least better part of one and a half, was on quiet times. Those of you who were in church then, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, quiet times. And so the emphasis was shifted uh, from, from other things to quiet times. You sit down, you cut out time, you pray, you read scripture, maybe you pray again, you journal, right? And then, and then you're done for the day. Now, that was a, a beautiful movement within the church because we began to realize that God is not a God far off. He's a God who's near, who walks with us and talks with us. But one of the unfortunate byproducts of that is as we sat down and this was our intent and this is what our purpose was and we did it well, is that we began to, to disregard what the scriptures were actually telling us to do. <laughs> we, were, we were checking off the list that we had read them, but not obeying what they told us to do. Okay? Now that was just on a small snapshot level, uh, maybe over a couple of decades. On a bigger, on a bigger uh, platform in the late 19th and most of the 20th century, um, a huge cooperative mission movement uh, took off. And some fantastic things took place on the globe. And, and, and multiple denominations got involved and had different versions of it. The Baptist Church has the International Mission Board, the cooperative program, which is one of the driving forces behind the, the modern mission movement of the 20th century. And so what small churches realized is that we're little, right? We've got 40, 50 folks. We can't afford to send people to the ends of the earth. But if we'll send what we can afford in and another small church sends what they can afford in, eventually we can cooperate, right? And we can fund a global mission effort. And, and amazing things were accomplished through that, that uh, cooperative program and global mission movement. To this day, it's a very active and vibrant uh, mission movement on the globe. Uh, we still at our church, here's all right, we give money to the cooperative program. We, we believe in it. However, there was another unfortunate byproduct that came out of that. And those of you who have been in church long enough remember uh, what, how missions was taught to us. Missions for us, when I grew up in the church as a young guy, um, was this. It was twice a year, a missionary family would come back on furlough and they would visit your church on a Sunday night 
and roll a slideshow and you would give money, right, to help support them. And then a couple of other times a year, you would take up offerings like Lottie Moon, right? And we would do this mission emphasis, but here's, here, and there were some fantastic things done, okay? Fantastic things still being done today. The unfortunate byproduct is what, is really the mentality that we sat into that, that lie that if I will drop a dollar in the bucket, I'm off the hook. If I will just, here comes the missionary thing again. Sunday night, I'll endure the slideshow, right? I'll even pray for them because they always say, you know, the first thing you can do is you can pray. Second thing you can do is you can give. Like that, it's true. You, you know the spill, right? And so, okay, I'll pray for them. And by golly, I'll put something in the bucket. And then, and then we, 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 we lied to ourselves. We told each other, now we're obeying this command. Okay? Now, what was a beautiful thrust in global missions also uh, in the eddies became this byproduct of this complacent mentality that for the vast majority of the church, missions isn't for us. Missions is just a little department in the church for the super spiritual Christians who don't like cable TV. <laughs> right? We, we bought into that. And we excused ourselves from this command. So we've done it, we've done it in a number of different ways. But like here's, here's the overwhelming point we're going to see unfold in the book of Acts. Missions is not something that the church did. It is everything that the church did. Missions wasn't a special department in the first century church that, that Paul was the team leader of. Okay? Missions is the only thing the church did. Everything else that they did was part of that singular mission. How about taking care of the widows? It was part of the mission. How about selling your possessions to take care of the needs of, of others? It was part of the mission. We'll see it clearly. How about gathering to worship in an assembly like this? You better believe it was part of the mission. The church had one mission from Jesus. Take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, here comes the challenge for us as a church. And that means that when we can get involved in all kinds of great things, all kinds of different ministry departments, youth ministry, kids ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, right? If what we're doing under the banner of Jesus is not part of the mission, we're not participating with what he's doing. So across the board, it's all rock whether you're part of the greeting team, the finance team, staff, women's ministry team, if you are not part of this mission, you're not part of what Jesus is doing. I don't think him saying, oh, by the way, I'm gonna go with you is just comfort. I think what he's saying is, I'm inviting you to join me in this. So here's what happens. Now we're ready for the book of Acts. We're gonna cover all 28 chapters. It's gonna be fantastic. Um, Acts 1 we get this reiterated. So Luke is writing, uh, the physician who became a believer, Luke is writing Acts. He's recording the narrative of the church launching. And in Acts 1, he records Jesus before his ascension saying the same thing he said in Matthew 28. Okay, so we're going to pick it right back up there. Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and, and where? To the ends of the earth. This is what you're going to be doing. 
That was in chapter one. Guess what happens in chapter two? We talked about last week. Holy Spirit falls, boom. Like just disrupts things and everybody's like freaking out. And the only explanation that they have at first is these people are drunk, which by the way, I think um, sometimes it, it feels kind of weird when you walk into a church and everybody's singing about the blood. And you're like, Some, these people, they can't be sober. That's, it's in Acts 2, just the Holy Spirit moving. So Peter, right, no conferences to go to, no church training strategies. He hadn't been to church plant school. He hadn't been to seminary. All he had was what? Go do this. It's all he had. So he steps up in Acts 2 and says, well, guys, you're not going anywhere, right? Here goes nothing. I'm about to preach Jesus. And so he preaches Jesus. In Acts 2.41, this is where we ended last week, we read these words. Right after that sermon, those who received his word, what was his word? He preached on Jesus. Those who received his word were what? Baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's one amazing Sunday right there. 120 just became 3,120. Like, like that. What were they doing? Did they have this fantastic church strategy program that they were launching? Were they giving away free iPads? What were they doing to get this many people excited? Simply obeying what Jesus commanded. Proclaim the gospel. Those who respond in belief are Baptized. Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Does that sound familiar? Baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. You see how they're just carrying out the simple command of Jesus. Not making it any more complex than that. Matter of fact, there is no real church government at this point. Like I really think that it was the disciples sitting around going... Who's going to preach? Who wants to preach next? And, and what happens is by chapter 6 of Acts, they're overwhelmed and like, we need some help. And so they recruit these, uh, these men who possibly were the first deacons and, and church government and organization begins to emerge. By the time we get to chapter 15, they're struggling with deep theological issues. And, and now we've got Jews who are believers and non-Jews who are believers. And the churches were struggling with that because the non-Jews, you know, they hadn't been through all the Jewish rituals and hadn't been circumcised and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, and so they, they convene what we understand to be the first Jerusalem council. And so you see the church kind of emerge and begin to formulate and organize itself. But the simple command that the church was launched on was this, go make disciples of the nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that they commanded. This is what I'm going to be doing. And so Acts 2, I love it. So how many people were added that day? 3,000. Look at what they commit themselves to. Um, I'm jump back to my notes so you don't have to wait on me to turn there. So here's what they committed themselves to. The apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Jump to 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, doing what we're doing right here, and breaking bread in their homes, meeting with a smaller group of people, whether you call it Sunday school or cell group or small group or life group or discipleship group or, or group group or whatever you want to call it, they were meeting in intimate settings and corporate settings. Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's tons of conversation today when you go to church conferences on what the New Testament church was really focused on. I, I, would, 
I mean, I would beg you to find anything else but this. The church was obeying what Jesus said. We are on a mission. We have one mission. Jesus gave it to us. Now, if you go on from here, um, some fun things happen. Uh, Peter and John get in a lot of trouble in just a minute um, and get arrested. And then they go back to the believers and they tell the whole story. Like one of the first times somebody had been arrested other than Jesus and they got released. They're all telling the believers all about it and all that sort of stuff. But as we get into like Acts 4, look at, look at the first four verses of Acts 4, 1 and 4. Um, they're beginning to draw some attention to themselves and the religious government is beginning to, or the government and the religious authorities are beginning to acknowledge Christianity is exploding and they're having some issues with it. So in Acts 4, verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. <laughs> that's not an affection came upon them. Okay? Matter of fact, that's going to get used later and it's not going to end well for the person who was come upon. So they were, came upon them. Verse 2. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. Verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word did what? Believed. And the number of the men came to about what? 5,000. This church is exploding. Simply obeying and believing Jesus, the church is exploding. Where do you sign up for this conference? Where can you send me to go learn how to lead church this way? You see, like from the very beginning, Jesus says, this is what I will build my church on. What you do with me, right, and what you join me in doing. If you're doing anything less than this mission right here, you are not acting as the church. I, I don't care how many people you feed. Is that important? Yes. Why? Because God loves people. And we have food and there are people who don't. And if you love people the way God loves people, you will give them food. But giving them food isn't ultimately the mission. We give them food because we're on a mission. Because more than just feeding a hungry stomach, which will be hungry again in a few hours, we also want to offer, right, the beautiful proclamation of the hope we found in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to get into debates on social ministry strategies, all that kind of stuff. I'm good for that. Let's go dig wells for people who don't have clean water for the love. We're working on right now getting electricity to a village for the very first time in the Philippines. Is it about electricity? No. It's about saying to these people, listen, God loves you immensely. And he's teaching us to love people immensely. And so we want to come in and we want to be part of every need in your life. But if that's all we're doing, we're not participating with what Jesus is doing. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Now, the church explodes. So I'll cover quite a bit of ground in, in a hurry. Right now, they're still in Jerusalem. And Jesus said what? Start in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Well, in Acts 7, persecution has set in. Remember I said that in Acts 6, some men were selected to help out with the distribution of food and help the apostles. One of those men was a man by the name of Stephen. Okay? He's brand new to church leadership. And he gets recognized by the religious authorities as somebody who's connected to the Christian movement, this explosion. And he, gets, he gets, basically gets arrested. And he's, he's told to give an account. So Stephen, this brand new church leader, brand new Christian, if we're going to be honest about it, like church just launched. 
He's pulled before these persecutors and he said, now tell us what you actually believe. I love it. Go read his sermon in Acts 7. He proclaims Jesus. He says, this is what I believe. And guess what they do? They throw rocks at him until he's dead. They kill him. And chapter 8, verse 1 says that Saul, who will become Paul, who's going to write most of the letters we're going to look at this year, was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And so Acts 8.1 begins the dispersion, where they begin to leave Jerusalem. God uses this persecution, right, to advance his gospel global mission. So chapter 8, you, you find Philip. This is where Philip... Uh, he shares the gospel with uh, Simon, the, the magician sorcerer, and he meets the Ethiopian. Okay? So he's on mission. Like he was run out of town by rocks, but he's still on mission. And so like, let me stop for just a second because, again, for a lot of us, it's an undoing of a mentality, isn't it? Like a lot of us, we come into church thinking that missions is the special department for the special people. And as long as we give money and we promise to pray, we're good. But the story that's unfolding is saying a different thing. And we have to, that has to be un- unraveled. We need to realize, oh, wait a second. If I'm in Christ, I'm supposed to be on this mission. Okay, so mission can be formal, uh, formal things that we do, like Super Bowl parties coming up soon. Or we go down to uh, the Day Resource Center, folks who uh, probably don't have a home, don't have a job, don't have hardly anything, we're going to throw a Super Bowl party for them. Okay? Is it about the Super Bowl? I mean, let's just be honest. I don't even know who's playing the Super Bowl. I don't care. But it's about showing people that you are loved by God and he cares enough about the details of your life that we'll come spend some time with you. That's all, if that's all we do, that's not enough. We've got things like Flint, Michigan coming up, returning to Flint, Michigan, and the Philippines trip going back. Those are formal missions efforts that we're organizing and we're inviting the church into. But what about those who can't get time off, can't figure out how to get the schedule to work out? Does that mean you're just out of luck? Absolutely not. I love Acts 8 how God uses Philip to take the gospel from Jerusalem towards Samaria. In just some, what seems to be almost like random opportunities, he's always on mission. Like every moment of every day. So like if you leave here today and you go out to eat lunch, you're on mission. If you leave here today and you go eat lunch with your family at home, guess what? You're on on mission. And when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, you're on mission. You see, you see how it's all connected? Missions is not a trip you go on. It's part of how we organize it, right? If we don't organize and do some kind of a plan, we'll never get to the ends of the earth. We're just not smart enough, right? We have to be intentional. However, your everyday existence, if you are in Christ, is to be on this mission. So let's stop for a second too, and let's talk about how um, evangelism works into the equation. Um, I grew up in a church setting that taught me that evangelism and discipleship were two different things. Some of you were taught that as well. You got evangelism, discipleship, worship, evangelship. I just keep adding ship to it. What? You have these different categories of things. And so we were taught that if it fits in the description of worship, it belongs in this box. But if it fits the description of fellowship, it belongs in this box. If it, if it fits the description of mission, it belongs in this box. Well, the problem is we've been reading the scriptures And we're realizing that's not how it describes life in Christ. We read things like Romans 1 that says, you know what your spiritual act of worship is? Offering your life as a living sacrifice. Worship is not just the thing you do on Sunday. It's your every moment of everyday existence. Whoa, that changes things, right? 
Like worship isn't just the songs that we sing. The songs that we sing are part of it, right? But that's not all it is. And so we, and we move over to categories like fellowship. Well, if it fits the description of fellowship, I mean, if it's a life group, sanctioned, and oh, then it's fellowship. What? That, that is fellowship, I hope. But so is running into somebody from the church at Walmart and like saying, hey, how's your week going? Is there anything specific that I could be praying about for you and your family this week? Awesome. Hug, high five, whichever one you are. Roll along your way. Um, here's an example. This just happened. Um, some of you know Craig Moss. Craig Moss and I were talking on the phone this week, and he was sharing. He's like, I just have to share a story with you. And so Craig, I'm going to say names of people you probably don't know. It's okay. I'm just going to let you know these are real people in our church. He said, i got to share a story with you about something happened. He said, last Friday night, um, I had this ambition uh, to move furniture into our new house. Him, him and his wife, we got a new home. And while she was out, he was going to surprise her. He's like, oh, I don't have a truck. And uh, which in Texas, if you have a truck, you're the first person who gets volunteered to help, right? So he calls John Grubb, who he knows has a truck. So John, can I borrow your truck to move some stuff? And John says, sure. I'll leave the keys for you. You come by and you get it. We'll trade vehicles. You rock and roll. So Craig goes, he gets the keys. He's driving the truck to pick up the trailer from another church member who's loaning him a trailer. And he gets a call from John. John's like, wait a second. Who's helping you move? And, uh, and Craig's like, well, nobody. I'm gonna, I got it in there by myself. I'll figure it out. And John's like, what are you talking about? Go get the trailer and I'll meet you and I'll go help you. So he's like, okay. Hangs up the phone. He's rolling. Uh, he has to call another person, BJ Warren, to, to organize and hook up the trailer and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so uh, BJ calls him and says, or they're talking on the phone, and BJ goes, oh, but by the way, who's, who's helping you move? And he's like, well, I was going to do it by myself, but John said he was going to help me. And BJ says, well, now you got three. Where did I meet you? So Craig's like overwhelmed. He's like, whoa, this is going to be good. And, and, and so he goes to pick up the trailer, and, and Chad, if you know Chad, BJ's brother-in-law jumps in the truck with Craig and they just start small talking and Craig's like, well, I guess I need to go. And Chad's like, okay, let's go. He's like, what do you mean let's go? Well, we're going to move, right? I'm going with you. You're not doing this by yourself. And what a beautiful expression of fellowship. If this task is yours, this task is mine. Without anybody asking, right? So there's an example of how the boxes don't work, right? Fellowship is part of every moment of every day in our experience here as Christians. And so the same is true of mission. The same is true of mission. So here's the, th here's the way I see it, the best I can understand it. We have been given this command to go make disciples of the, of the earth. That's the umbrella from underneath which we do church. And everything we do must fit underneath that umbrella. So evangelism Evangelism is the first step in making disciples. It's not something separate. We don't have these special, uh, the special team of evangelists within the church, and they're the ones who go share the gospel, and then this group over here organizes the mission efforts. No, we are commanded to go make disciples of the earth. We are all on this mission to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. And, and I believe that the scriptures are saying to us, if you're doing anything less than this, you're not participating in the church. Or saying to us as a church, if as a church you're doing anything less than this, you're not participating in my mission. This is what I'm doing on the earth. I'm taking a hope to people that really matters. I'm taking truth into dark places. I'm taking light into places of hopelessness. This is the mission I'm on. Now, as the story unfolds, we'll pick it up um, just a few verses from Acts 18 and 19 because this will bring us up to where the gospel gets to Ephesus. And I want you to see something to set us up for next week, okay? 
So the church is exploding. It's rolling. It's this, the way Jesus described it is the gates of hell will not prevail. The flip side of that is the church is prevailing on earth. Just blowing up and going and going. Okay, so in Acts 18, uh, Paul, who's now converted, uh, so cool. Go read um, Acts 9 and how God converts Paul. The brother didn't stand a chance. Just flat slaps him and knocks him on the ground. Oh, really, you want to kill Christians? Tell you what, I want you to write most of the New Testament. How about that for purpose? And so he does. So by the time we get to Acts um, 18, the gospel has moved out of Jerusalem. It's beginning to hit places like Ephesus and Corinth and, and other places in that region. Paul comes across um, Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple, who really, really know the gospel well. And so he invites them to travel with him. Uh, and they actually travel with him to Ephesus. He leaves them there uh, to work with uh, a guy named Apollos, who's there, who at this point in time, he understands most of the gospel, but he's off on baptism. He's still under the mentality of John the Baptist baptism, and he hasn't learned about this Matthew 28 baptism, this proclamation of what you do with Jesus. So this is where we'll pick it up in, uh, in, in Acts uh, 18. Just a few verses from Acts 18, 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. You could sit down with Apollos and you could, you could play stump the preacher with him and he was probably going to fare pretty well, okay? Knew the scriptures really well. Matter of fact, Luke, who's writing this, is a physician. So he had impressed Luke, right? So he was a competent man. 25. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning who? Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, who came with Paul, and he left them there, when they heard him, look at this beautiful example, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What a beautiful expression of discipleship was already just fervent, excited, and he was preaching Jesus. And when he was done, this couple just pulled him aside and said, man, you're off to a great start. Can we speak more truth into your life? Can we help you understand more fully the mission? Verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples, welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus, okay? Now he's gonna leave and head to Corinth, Apollos is, and Paul's gonna show up. And show back up. This is chapter 19. And so verse one says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he's gonna step in and speak to the people who are believers and see what's going on. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, hey guys, let me just ask you a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Why? Because Apollos didn't know the full gospel. He was teaching what he knew as best he could, but he didn't know the whole gospel. So Paul is there, and he says, well, this is three. Well, then into what then were you baptized? They said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Apollos taught us all about John the Baptist, how he invited people into the river to repent and to be baptized publicly to repentance. So Paul then, being obedient to Matthew 28, says, we need to correct a few things. Verse four, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, 
They were now baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on him, on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about how many? Twelve. Now, I want to show you that we're not just after numbers here, right? This mission movement sometimes involves 3,000, sometimes it involves 12. And really what we're going to go through for the next few weeks in the letters to the church in Ephesus are these 12 believers right here growing and sharing the gospel with others and calling more people into the congregation and the church is beginning to grow and bloom after, as Paul writes this letter to them. But how many people does Paul start with here? Luke wants you to know there were 12 there, 12 believers. As Paul comes in on the mission, baptizes them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Tongues and prophecy, all kinds of charismatic things were happening here. I like that. I, don't, I didn't grow up in a charismatic church. I don't always get it, but like it's, that's cool, okay? Um, don't ask me to do it because it's gonna, I don't know. I mean, like, it's just not a gift I have, but it, I'm not afraid of it. It's in the scriptures. It's what they were doing. Uh, Acts 19, verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched or that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I don't know how that worked. I have no idea. Commercial break for a second. When you begin to understand how the scriptures are teaching us to live and operate, you have to have these two categories in mind. Descriptive versus prescriptive. Sometimes the scriptures are just telling the story of what happened. They're just describing what happened. Sometimes it's prescriptive and they're saying this is how to do things. You clear on the differences? So like when Noah's sons find him drunk and naked in the tent, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. We clear on that? Right? So that and you can you can add to any so when you're unfolding a narrative here, so I'm not saying we need to go get a bunch of handkerchiefs and let me touch them, and then let's go sell them online. Like, that's not what it's saying here. But as Luke records it, he's like, dude, I couldn't explain it. Like, even the stuff Paul touched, like, God was using it somehow. Like, like if you come get a Kleenex from me, it'll have snot in it. But, like, that's not why Luke is recording it. He's just, he wants us to see the magnitude of the miraculous thing that God was doing through this simple mission movement. Then I love this story that follows, okay? One of my favorite stories from Acts. Here we go. Just some background. So um, people were beginning to catch on to what was happening through the apostles, like sorcerers and magicians, and they were trying to figure it out and unlock it, okay? And what we're going to see here are seven itinerant Jewish exorcists. I had no idea that position even existed in Judaism. Seven, we're going to find out they're brothers. They're traveling exorcists in Judaism. Well, they witness... The power of God working through the apostles to deliver people from evil. And they're like, whoa, we need some of that. Okay? So this is the, that's the background for the story. So 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, this wording is awesome, I adjure you, I command you, I, I'm telling you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You catch on what's happening? Like, we don't know what he has, but ditto. That's what they're saying to the evil spirits. Like, what we've been doing is not working. I know, watch Paul. So they're stepping up to the evil, the evil realm of the world and saying, whatever Paul said. Now, I, I love how this unfolds. I really do. This is a great story. And so 
the, the evil spirit answers them. First of all, if an evil spirit answers you, something's not going well. But look at this. This is what the evil spirit says. Jesus I know. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Now, that is it's not what you want an evil spirit to say back to you. I know Jesus and we, we, we know Paul, but I got no idea who you are. Now, here's what happens. I'm going to read it and then we'll. And so, here's what happens. Verse 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit had the evil spirit. So there's seven brothers here, the seven sons of Sceva. They're like, hey, let's try something new. Let's do what Paul did. I don't know. What did he say? I don't know. Uh, whatever Paul said. Whoa. Now the evil spirit says back to them, I don't, I'm sorry, who are you? I know Jesus and I, know, I don't know who you are. And then watch what happens. The man in whom the spirit, this evil spirit was dwelling does something. Verse 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit and whom was the evil spirit, he leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a scrapper. I've been in a few fights in my life. I, I haven't won a whole lot. I know it's surprising. I have the reach, but that's about all I have. Um, and I've walked away from a few fights having lost. And I'm not, a, so I'm not an expert. If you leave the fight, Naked? You just got your tail whipped. Seven brothers. These are brothers, right? To intensify things. It's different if you have seven friends, but seven brothers just got their tail whooped, right, by the evil spirit dwelling in this one person. He said, I don't know who the heck you think you are. How about a little bit of this? Ba-bow. No, 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 no. Give me your clothes. Now you can leave. This is part of the gospel movement. This is real stuff. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of where? Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was partially launched on this story. The people in town were beginning to hear. Did you hear what happened to the sons of Sceva over there? I know. I heard they got their tail whipped. I heard they got whipped so bad that not only were there no, like the nose was bleeding, the eye, but they didn't have any clothes on. I saw it. Woo. And the people were talking about it. All of the boys running through town on naked, trying to clothe them. Like, I saw it. I heard it. Look at this. Verse 18. And look at the verse 17. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was what? Extolled, exalted, proclaimed. Through seven unbelievers getting their tail whooped and stripped naked, Jesus' mission still carried on. Which is very helpful for me. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. We'll get into this next week, but Ephesus was a hotbed for, um, for, for cults and groups of magicians. And so they're beginning to confess and divulge their witchcraft, their, their magician stuff, all that they're into, uh, to the point where Paul begins to teach against it. And so the, here's what happens in just a minute. A riot's going to break out because the people quit buying all the trinkets from the goddess. They start denouncing, confessing, denouncing the, like, I mean, who wants to be on the side with the seven sons of Sceva? Come on. That's evangelism right there. They're like, holy cow, let's put that stuff away. I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? And so, and so what happens is the people start getting angry, the merchants, the people who are creating these little trinkets, and they cause a riot in the streets. 
Verse 19, and the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which um, one of our members came to me afterward. I think that uh, one of these pieces represented about a day's wages. You can do the math, divide by 365. It'll tell you about how many years wages were collected worth of like books of sorcery. Whatever reason, Luke wants you to know that. This was a big deal in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was launched on denouncing witchcraft, uh, magicianship, sorcery, and stepping towards Jesus. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see the mission movement? The church of Jesus is on a mission. A church that's static is not following Jesus. A church that's sitting still is not following Jesus. Guess what that means about me? When I'm not on mission, I'm not following Jesus. Now, that's not, let me heap up the guilt, let's all sign up for Flint, Michigan. That's, hey, we need to take inventory, okay? I'm gonna give you one more example um, of how mission can happen in your everyday practical life. This example came to me right before Christmas. One of our members, Mike Devenuto, we have a picture of him in case you don't know who he is. Um, I, I got this picture and asked for permission to share it. There he is. Some of you know Mike. Um, let me tell you what's happening. That on the right looks like a helicopter is a Christmas ornament. So here's what happened. Uh, in December, he works at Bell Helicopter. Uh, his department got together and said, you know what? For the end of the year Christmas party, let's get creative. Let's all uh, create our own Christmas ornaments and then we'll get up and present them in front of the directors and I think one vice president. And then they'll, they'll vote and somebody will win a prize, okay? And so Mike's like, and those of you who know Mike, this is so Mike. He's like, okay, you're inviting me to share the gospel? Okay. And so he creates this helicopter and it's got like a thing coming down to the manger. And, and like he uses this to tell the real story of Christmas, the real rescue mission of God to these Bell helicopter people. And, uh, and he got mixed reviews and we were talking about today. And like, but here's the point, like, and, and here's the thing, he doesn't want to be exalted or patted on the back or glorified. This is just a practical example on how this works to be on mission. Did everybody love it? No. Did some people? Yeah. But were people exposed to the gospel? Yes. And, he, and he's still watching for the people who were there watching that presentation, looking for the opportunity to start up more conversations and lead people into a relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be on mission. If you can go on the trips, fantastic. Uh, we don't need the whole church, though, in Flint, Michigan. Sorry, Jeff, we don't. It'd be a strategical nightmare. But those of you who are called to go, we need you there. Uh, the Philippines, huge commitment. We get it. Do. Get it. Does the whole church need to be there? Well, I don't know where we'd stay. I don't know what we'd eat. They would be out of rice in about 37 minutes. <laughs> but here's the thing. Those of you who God is calling to go, we need you there. We need you there. Okay, we really do. Um, and go on down the list. But every believer in this room, listen to me. If you are involved in anything less than the mission of Jesus in your life, you're not on mission with him. And the message that the unchurched world is getting from us is a little bit confusing. What is the church really about? They're about singing. Well, this one over here is about preaching. Well, this one over here is about missions. Well, this one over here is about youth ministry. This one over here is about water wells. This one over here is about, like, here's the point. Jesus has given us one mission, church, one. And if, if we're doing anything else in our church that is not connected to that, it's just frivolous. 
social activity. Okay, I want to end here. Um, if you are not a Christian, thank you for enduring that long conversation about what we're supposed to be doing according to Jesus. Um, but we want you to know that your life can have um, immense, perfect, God-ordained purpose. And if you're going to be real honest with yourself, if I'm going to be real honest with myself, searching for purpose in and of myself and trying to create my own destiny doesn't work. I mean, I go through spells where it's going good and spells where it's not. Right? And so if we're going to be real honest, we, we need something outside of ourselves to call us into something that matters. That is the invitation Jesus is offering. Jesus is looking upon you with compassion. He sees your confusion, your pain, your hurt. This is the earth, the whole earth. He sees it. And he, his desire is to rescue and to call us into a relationship that along with it comes grace and mercy like you've never tasted before. A freedom from guilt and shame that you'll find nowhere else on earth. And I would, I would offer that no other religion on earth even comes close to offering a shame that unlocks guilt like Jesus does. You're being invited into something that matters. Something eternal. Something that will carry on. Something that carried on after Paul was dead and Peter and James and John and Matthew. Something that will go on after you're dead. Something that really matters. I'm going to invite the worship team back up and, and pray for us. As we bow to pray right now, I, you know, I, I don't really know where everybody's at. I know that across the room we've got super Christians who are like, yes, yes, amen, amen, amen. And, and probably those of us who are in that category, we just need to stop and take some real inventory. I mean, are all the things we're doing, are they really connected to this mission? And let's just check the things that we're doing, insert air quotes, for God. Uh, to, really, to really determine whether or not we're actually joining him in his mission. Um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm going to pray for you. Um, I hope that doesn't offend you. I'm going to pray for you that today your eyes would be open to see something uh, that matters, to see something that is enduring, something that is real, something that is outside of you that is eternal. A place to come and find mercy and grace and love, a place to find purpose. Father, thank you for calling us.